He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the blessedness of the incarnation. God came to be with us in Christ and Christ takes us to be with the Father through his work upon Calvary by his death and his burial and his resurrection. This is Andrew Smith pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, this evening, I I want us to return to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I just want to speak on one verse this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over there. I know that you by now are familiar with this passage of Scripture, and one of the things about Biblical exposition is that um, if you choose a lengthy text uh, to preach on, sometimes you miss some of the the glories of the details of the rich theology of a particular passage. And it has been my custom from time to time that if I bite off more than I can chew, I try to go back and hit some of the deeper points of a particular passage. And that's really what I want to do this evening as we look together at one verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And verse 9, hear the word of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our look at this verse this evening. Our Father, we are so grateful for the riches of Christ that come to us through him, through the sacrifice of his life upon the cross of Calvary. We thank you, Lord, that as we celebrate his incarnation, we are celebrating his deity, we are celebrating his humanity. We are celebrating deity and humanity joined in one. Lord, our great mediator, our savior. And Lord, we ask that as we look at just this one verse this evening, as we seek to meditate and to reflect upon the significance of the incarnation, as we seek to remind ourselves why we celebrate Christmas, we ask that your blessed Holy Spirit would powerfully work through this text in our hearts for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In celebrating Christmas, we're obviously celebrating the incarnation of our Lord. Other than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it can be stated, and I don't think it would be an overstatement to make this statement, that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the most glorious of all the miracles of the Bible. That God himself, as the confessions say, does not have a body like men, but that this God who does not have a body like men took upon himself human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really is a magnificent story to think that God, in the person of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would leave 
heaven. He would leave that intimate, unique fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit to come to the earth he created that had been cursed by sin. But that is exactly what he did. The incarnation, therefore, is a story we could say one of riches to rags. It is a story of riches to rags because Jesus left the heavenly riches of his home to come to this earth. But it is also a story of rags to riches. It is a story of riches to rags for Christ, but of rags to riches for us. And we can begin all the way back in the Old Testament, can't we? The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that all of our righteousness or all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. They are, as it were, a polluted garment. Jesus took upon himself not the pollution of sin, but he left the glory of heaven to enter a sinful world, to fellowship with sinful man, to be part of a sinful family, to call sinful apostles, and to redeem a sinful people. Now the context of 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, you know well, we've spent three weeks on it. Paul is addressing, isn't he, this practical matter of Christian giving, the practical matter of financially giving to the work of the Lord, specifically giving to the poor saints that lived in Judea. But here in verse 9, tucked away in all of this talk about giving to the Lord's work, giving to those who have need, is this rich verse speaking about Christ giving of himself for his people in economic language. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is obviously describing Christ's descent from riches to rags so that his elect people could rise from rags to riches. There are many stories of rich people giving their wealth to the poor, but none tops this. This is a story of one not merely giving of his riches, but one who gave of himself, one who gave his life. This is not merely something you read about in Reader's Digest. What we read about tonight comes from Holy Scripture. This is not merely an example of philanthropy. This is an exposition of theology concerning the self-giving sacrifice of the God-man, the most glorious of all stories that could ever be told. And here in verse 9, this is a moving statement, isn't it? Of magnificent and glorious proportions directly telling us exactly what Christmas is about. Christmas is about giving. The giving of God's Son in the Incarnation. Our Lord said it best. Luke records it for us in Acts 20 and verse 35 when Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That wasn't something Jesus just said. That was something Jesus did. He gave himself for us. He gave himself for his elect people to redeem us from sin, to redeem us from our bondage to Satan. This was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich with heaven's treasures, he himself became poor 
so that we through his poverty might become rich. Christmas is therefore about Christ's incarnation. He went from heavenly riches to earthly rags in order for us to go from earthly rags to heavenly riches. Two, no longer be marked by the filthiness of our own rags and the pollution of our own sin, but to be clothed with the very imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us about that in this one simple and straightforward verse, providing for us, I think, three thoughts for us to consider this evening. And I'm glad to report tonight that I am returning to my practice of alliteration, and all three of these points will begin with the letter P. First of all, I want you to consider with me the promise. The promise, the beginning of verse 9, for you know, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for you know. Gnosko in the Greek, that's the word for know. It was often used as a Jewish idiom to describe the intimate knowledge such as that which took place between a man and a woman who joined themselves together in a physical union and holy matrimony. I'm trying to keep it G-rated here this evening. The Corinthians themselves knew by intimate experience, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They hadn't just heard about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew experientially and salvifically the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three titles given to him. He is described here as Lord. That is, of course, describing the title given him by the Father. After he accomplished redemption, we read about that in Philippians 2.9, that the Father bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That is the name Lord. He is our Lord. But he's also Jesus. We had read for us tonight from Matthew 1.21, For you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That is who he is. He is Jesus, the Savior. The one who saves. He is the Lord. The name above all names. He is Jesus, the Savior. Not a mere prophet. Not a mere example. Not someone who just had an impact upon the world in which he lived. No, he is the Savior. He is the Lord, Jesus. And then the third title, Christ. That is a very rich Old Testament title that describes him as the anointed king. As a matter of fact, Jesus did not shy away from recognizing the fact that he was the promised Messiah. In John 18 and verse 37, when he was on trial, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You do not turn a deaf ear to the voice of a king. The one who has authority. The one who has authority to give life. The one who has authority to take life. The one who has authority to create physical life. And the one, in this case, who also has the authority to create spiritual life. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that title, Lord was the title of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. And so when Paul refers to Jesus here as the Lord Jesus Christ, 
he is revealing to us that Jesus was God come in human flesh. As God, he represents God to man. As man, he represents man to God. He is our mediator. He is our go-between to reconcile sinful man to holy God. He is the promised redeemer through whom, and this is Paul's point, God's grace is manifested in the world. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that Jesus is God's incarnate exposition of the word. He is truth incarnate. We could read it this way, John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were revealed and realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time except the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He, that is Jesus, has explained Him. He has exposited. He has exegeted the very identity of God because He is God in human flesh. This is the grace of God that he would come to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Abraham knew about this grace. Abraham knew about this promise of grace. Turn with me to the book of Galatians and chapter 3 just for a moment. Galatians chapter 3. This was something that was prophesied and predicted In the Old Testament, Abraham was aware of this. Galatians 3, beginning in verse, we'll pick up in verse 16. Now the promises, there's that key word promises, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. In other words, uh, the law was given at Mount Sinai 430 years after the promise of grace, the promise of salvation to Abraham, but that law did not nullify the grace of God. It did not nullify the promise. It's not like God said, okay, Abraham, you're going to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but everyone who comes after you who was under Mosaic law is now saved by works. Paul says that's not how it is. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, if salvation comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. It is no longer according to grace, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise, Paul says. And then skip down to verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The promise is according to grace. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And so the promise that is spoken about here in 2 Corinthians 8, about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was something that God promised from the beginning of time. You can flip back to Romans chapter 4 for another brief moment because this is another important text that really crystallizes for us this simple reality. 
And that is that salvation has always been a gift of God. It has always come to us by grace according to a promise. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the grace of God sending His Son into the world to secure our salvation. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul says, That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that is an ethnic Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that would be Gentiles, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And hope he believed, that is Abraham, against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew in strong faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness because it came according to God's grace by promise and Abraham was declared righteous. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, Paul says, verse 24, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and so Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 that the promise comes by grace the grace of God comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is why Peter would say on the day of Pentecost that this promise is for you and your children. It is for all who call upon the name of the Lord far and wide. It is for all of those who understand that salvation comes by grace as we believe and trust in the promises of God. So the story of Christ, a story of riches to rags, is based on an ancient promise. And it goes back further than Abraham. It goes all the way back to Genesis, right? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. A promise all the way back to Eden. So Paul wants us to understand that what has taken place in the coming of Christ is something that fulfills the glorious promises of God. This story of riches to rags was authored by God himself. This wasn't plan B. It's not like... um, God created Adam and Eve and they screwed everything up and God said, well, I better get back to the drawing board and decide what I'm going to do. No, this was all in the intricate, sovereign plans of God from all of eternity that we would know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise contained therein. But Paul Paul takes us on this journey in this story of riches to rags, not only by pointing to the promise, But secondly, by pointing to the price, because anything worth anything in life will cost something. So he goes on to say, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the promise, here's the price, that though he was rich, yet for your sake 
he became poor. That was the price. Though he was rich, what does that mean? Well, it means that he possessed the shared glory of the Father before the world was. For instance, Jesus said this, John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That was a declaration of deity. You want to talk about the promises made to Abraham, I existed before him. I was with the Father in that covenant of redemption when we planned this salvation. I came from heaven because I am God. Before Abraham was born, I am. And in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He was rich with the glory of deity. He was rich with the glory of intimate fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And though he was rich in and of himself, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, Although he had the right to and he was the possessor of all things, the Lord owns all things in heaven and on earth. All that is in the earth belongs to the Lord. Although he was rich in that sense, Paul's point here is that he did not avail himself to those riches, but in the incarnation, let me put it to you this way, and I'll clarify what I mean. Jesus took a vow of poverty, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now this is not a reference to financial poverty. We did read in Matthew chapter 1, a quotation from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 regarding the humility of our Lord where it, it speaks about the fact, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Everyone sort of despised the tribe of Judah. And the Bible says here, you're not going to be the least anymore from, because from this humble tribe that didn't have the riches of the world will come a shepherd, will come a savior. But though he was rich, he became poor. Not what he did while he was on earth, but what he did by coming to earth. The Bible says that the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Some people have said that 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and speaking about the poverty of Christ, is pointing to his economic condition. He was a carpenter for a period of time. He gave that up, and uh, he was supported by donations that were made in the treasury Judas, of course, was responsible for keeping that box. And Jesus sort of just traveled from here to there. People would take him in. He was sort of this hippie figure that was supported by donations and didn't have a job. And that sort of example of economic poverty is exactly what all Christians need to do. They need to sell their possessions, sell everything they have. There doesn't need to be any wealthy people in the world, any rich people in the world. Everyone needs to be on equal footing. That's not at all what this verse is teaching. It's not emphasizing what he did while he was on the earth. Of course, there were things about his life um, where he had to depend upon his father. We wouldn't say that he was the poorest person um, in the land of Israel. We wouldn't say he was the wealthiest person. That's not the point. It's not that he became poor in 
what he did while on this earth, Paul's point is that he became poor in the fact that he came to earth. He laid aside the glorious riches of his divine majesty that he shared with his father. Maybe one other text would be helpful if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I know that you are familiar with it, but this passage kind of crystallizes what we're talking about. Philippians 2 and verse 6, it says, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the emptying of himself had to do with the fact that he left the glories of heaven. He took upon himself a human body. He was found in human form in that humility, and he became obedient to the point of death. He was born of a virgin, born under the law, and was obedient to every law that God had given He submitted himself to that law in that humility and was perfect and then was crucified. He took upon himself something he did not have to take upon himself. He took upon himself a human form. So the language here that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, this is economic language to use in the form of a metaphor. It refers to his incarnation. He left the glorious riches and the glory of heaven to be birthed in this world like us. He was birthed in humble circumstances. He had flesh like us. He suffered from the normal physical ailments that any Jewish male would have suffered from during the first century. He would have even experienced the uh, emotional things that normal people experience. The Bible says he was even tempted as we are yet without sin. This is the poverty that Jesus adopted for himself that he didn't have to do. He descended from David. He came from a long line, a family, a family who had liars in it a family who had prostitutes in it, a family who had kings in it who fell into adultery and murder. He was born in a normal family. This is the type of poverty he adopted. He left the comfort of heaven, the fellowship with his father. He said in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Oh, Father, I'm giving myself up as a sacrifice. I'm trusting that I will return back to that intimate glory that I once had. He was misunderstood, misrepresented, rejected, spit upon, beaten, stripped, crucified. That's how he became poor. That was the price that Jesus Christ paid. Salvation is free to us. But salvation is not free because it cost the Lord Jesus Christ his life. And so Paul, in describing the incarnation of our Lord, this story of riches to rags of Christ so that we could go from rags to riches begins with the promise 
And then the price, and that takes us finally, number three, to the payoff. The promise, the price, the payoff. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the promise, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. There's the price. Now here's the payoff. So that you by his poverty might become rich. So that you by his poverty might become rich. He paid the price and the price paid off. The Bible uses that language of redemption. The Bible speaks about us being in slavery to sin. It speaks about Christ being our Redeemer, buying us out of the slave market of sin. Jesus went in debt. Jesus took a vow of poverty so that we might become rich. Rich with what? Spiritual riches. Let me explain it this way. 1 Peter 1.4 Peter says you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what Jesus did for us. Why did he have to do this? Because we are poor beggars. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are poor beggars that come to God through Christ by faith, asking if he will save us according to his mercy. And what we get in return is a glorious inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Paul even says in Romans 8.17 that you are children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are made rich in the spiritual blessings that he lavished upon us. If you flip over with me to Ephesians chapter 1, we see a list of these glorious, glorious blessings. What are they? Well, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Our election is one of the spiritual riches we cling to, isn't it? That God, in eternity past, chose us, not because of anything wonderful in us, but by His grace, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption, predestination, and adoption, the foreknowledge of God, the predetermined foreknowledge and counsel of God to choose a people for himself and to adopt them as sons through Jesus Christ into his family. Paul says in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. There's the word redemption again. The price that was paid The forgiveness of our trespasses. Here it is, according to the riches of His grace. That's what Paul's speaking about. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And what is the guarantee of all of this? 
Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, just like Father Abraham, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We become the recipients of all of these riches through the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, as Peter would say, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We escape the pollution of ourselves, the pollution of this world, the sin of this world. We gain the glory of heaven and we become divine partakers not in the very nature of God, but in the source of all of His goodness and all of His glory. We are made rich with the very glory that Christ laid aside to become poor for our sake. We are joint heirs with Christ. The Father restored to Christ the glory that He had before He came to this earth upon His resurrection and His ascension. And someday, if we are in Christ we will go to that same glory and share in the same treasure and riches of that glory for all of eternity. And we know that because we know that the Father always hears the Son, our great intercessor, who prayed to the Father in John 17, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. The glory that if you, you have given me, I have given to them. This is what the incarnation is all about. This is what Christmas is all about. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The great theologian Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians says this about verse 9. He says, and I quote, The price of this exaltation and everlasting blessedness of his people was his own poverty. It is by his poverty that we are made rich. Unless he had submitted to all the humiliation of his incarnation and death, we should never be rich, but would have remained poor destitute of all holiness, destitute of all happiness, destitute of all glory. We were marked by filthy rags, weren't we? But praise God for 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the blessedness of the incarnation. God came to be with us in Christ and Christ takes us to be with the Father through his work upon Calvary by his death and his burial and his resurrection. You can't talk about Jesus without talking about God because Jesus is God. And you can't talk about the birth of Christ without talking about his life because the life that he lived was an obedient life to the point of death. And while you're at it, you might as well mention his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. They all go together. And we receive all the benefits of that total and complete work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessed verse 
to remind us this Christmas of what is important, to remind us in a world that has many questions unanswered, in a world that seems, at least from a human perspective, is teetering and tottering on despair and hopelessness and tragedy and all sorts of things, to know what we know. There's a lot we don't know, but we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. What an opportunity to praise our Savior, to give glory to his name, and to thank him for the God-man. Let us bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the riches of your word, giving to us, Lord, in just one simple verse, in summary form, what the incarnation is all about. We're so grateful that your word is clear about the gospel, crystal clear. We understand that this promise of salvation is to be declared, and we recognize that even on a night night like tonight, a special night in which we celebrate our Lord's incarnation, that there could be someone here that doesn't know Christ, someone here who for the first time understands that they are poor beggars, destitute, covered in filthy, polluted garments of sin. They need clothes with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that your spirit might quicken your elect people, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, birth them into your kingdom. We pray for all these little ones, Lord, the youth that are here tonight, the kids that are here tonight. We thank you for them. We pray that these promises of the gospel would be real to them and real to them in their hearts, that Christ would be on the throne of their hearts, that they would understand, even as children, what Christmas is truly about. Father, minister to their hearts by the power of your Spirit, together with your Word this evening. We pray these things in the glorious and precious name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.